Let's hear some of that movie chat. Credits roll by and I tip my hat. Credits roll by, I wanna know more right away. Let's have some of that movie chat. Credits roll by, tell me who did that. Life in the credits is where I wanna play. Welcome to Life in the Credits. This is the show where we learn about entertainment by chatting with people who work in the industry. I'm Susan. And I'm Ben. And today we're discussing the film Mary Poppins. And joining us today is our special guest, Phil Rosenthal. So thank you, Phil, for joining us. Hey, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know I'm going to be the new Mary Poppins in the remake? We are so oh, yeah. excited. <laughs> That's why you're here, right? To promote the movie. <laughs> Emily Blunt is out and Phil Rosenthal is in. <laughs> she had her chance. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us today, Phil. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do and have done in the TV and film industries? Oh, my God. How much time do you have? All night. <laughs> I've done everything. I've I've been I've I've tried acting. I've been a PA. I've been, you know, a baby writer on TV and worked my way up the ladder to create a show and even struggled after that to yeah. create more shows and then completely switched lanes now find myself in the food and travel space. Right, absolutely. <laughs> and I've written books and I've directed a documentary. I tell people I love everything about show business, every aspect of show business. I love except the business. Yeah. The business part of show business is the unfun part. Yeah. But you have to do it. Yeah. There's right. no, you know... <laughs> Everyone would be in show business if it wasn't so, if the business wasn't so hard. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> because it's the most fun, right? Definitely. Absolutely. So maybe a good place to start. We always like to hear about people's paths for their career, like how they got to where they are, education, anything like that. So can you kind of tell us about your path? Okay, sure. I, I, you know, this is such a cliche, but I was picked on a lot as a kid. I was short and skinny and I found that the only way to not be picked on was maybe to make the bullies laugh and maybe a a little later to get a girl to talk to me because I wasn't Prince Charming. So I had to be his his funny sidekick. Sure, absolutely. (laughs) So that was that was my path into just the world of show business. My parents were very, very funny around the house. And I found that that was the currency of the house was making each other laugh. When we weren't <laughs> yelling, we were laughing. And then I watched way too much television as a child and got influenced by everybody that I saw. And I wasn't interested in serious acting. I was only interested in character acting and being funny on stage. Yeah. Not even to be a stand-up comedian, although I loved stand-up comedians and mm-hmm. list, go, went to bed listening to comedy records, right? But I was more interested in not being myself and being a funny character. And so I was in all the school plays. I was a big star in high school. And then I was encouraged to go to theater school. And and so I went to Hofstra University, which had a very good theater department. And once I was there, you know, it's not just, oh, let's put you in a play and mm-hmm. have fun. I had to learn Everything else about the theater, play analysis, what makes a good play. So I had to learn all about writing. I had to learn about directing and even producing and even stagecraft, right? Uh, 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 Building sets, doing things, learning it from every angle. 
Well, I didn't know how valuable that education would be years later when I was running a TV show. But I I called on all those aspects of my education. Yeah. And it really helped me be a good showrunner because you have to be able to know the difference between a writing problem, an acting problem, and a directing problem. Hmm. Yeah. Saves a lot of time, too. Yeah. Because I've been on shows when I first started as a writer in Hollywood. I was on other people's shows, and I noticed that they were all, you know, writers primarily who never learned all the other stuff and thought the only way to fix the scene was to go and rewrite it until three in the morning. (laughs) And that was hell. Yeah. And nothing ever got better at three in the morning. You just think it did. Yeah, right. Right. (laughs) And then I found that if, oh my God, if you just talk to that actor and have him, for instance, go stand next to the actress when he's saying that line, that line will now work. Yeah. And when that line works, you'll find that the scene works and then maybe your show works and you don't have to rewrite. (laughs) And fixing things is the most important part of the job. Yeah. Right. The other thing I always tell, especially young people, is because show business is so hard, you're not going to be working in it as much as you would like to. Yeah, definitely. Right. There's maybe three people who get noticed at the at the soda fountain and say, yeah. hey, I'm going to make you a star. So you have to take <laughs> a lot of odd jobs just to live. And a lot of the odd jobs aren't even available in show business. You have to really know somebody or get lucky to get one of those jobs. Yeah. So, but what I like to tell people is every single job that you have, contributes to your career yeah, and to your life as a human being. I had so many odd jobs. I was a bartender. I worked selling farm and implement cleaner on the phone. Awesome. Right? Because <laughs> when you graduate with a theater degree, unless you're going into the theater immediately, you're good for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so you take any job you can. Yeah. I worked as a security guard at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Wow. I was 21. At one point, I worked there from midnight to eight in the morning. Wow. And one night, I thought I could do this, and I couldn't because they found me asleep in a gallery on a bed that was 300 years old and part of the exhibit. (laughs) No. (laughs) And I was fired. Yeah. (laughs) Because they refrained from you, you know, touching the art, let alone sleeping on it. It's a big no in most museums. (laughs) And and so I uh, was humiliated and I thought, um, uh, this is the end of me. And I went from that to worked in a deli. I worked out so many odd jobs. Mm -hmm. Now it's eight, nine years later. I'm in Hollywood, going to try to make it in sitcoms with a friend of mine. Let's write a spec script, meaning a sample. Mm -hmm. What should we write about? This was 1989. Let's write a spec Roseanne. That was the big show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the time, what should we write about? I said, what if the John Goodman, the dad character, they need extra money and he takes a second job at the local art museum as a guard oh. and he falls asleep yeah. on a 300 year old bed. And when we <laughs> passed that around town to the agents, they all said, what an imagination. <laughs> and we were hired immediately. Awesome. <laughs> so that's the lesson. You yeah. never know. What life experience, good or bad, is going to contribute to your life later on? Yeah. Absolutely. I wrote a whole book about this. Not that I'm here to sell books, but I wrote a book called You're Lucky You're Funny. Yeah. How Life Becomes a Sitcom. And if you look at Raymond, Mm -hmm. 
90% of the stories in the nine years of that show came from yeah. me or from Ray or from one of the other writers. Yeah. If you worked for me, your job was to go home, get in a fight with your wife and come back in and tell me about it. <laughs> and that's how we ran the show. Yeah. And I learned uh, that that was a valid way to run a show by watching the people that came before me, like Carl Reiner. Mm -hmm. That's exactly how he ran the Dick Van Dyke show. Yeah. Right. One of my favorites. I loved all the shows growing up that were set in real life, that were that you believed those things could happen. Not the fanciful things, although I watched all that, too, because what choice did we have? Mm -hmm. Right. You know. Green Acres and I Dream of Genie, yeah, Bewitched, you know, stuff where the stuff couldn't happen. And that's great, but it just wasn't my wheelhouse. I like the stuff that you could relate to as a person mm -hmm. and you believe the stuff could happen. That was our only rule on Everybody Loves Raymond in the writer's room. Could this happen? Not would it definitely happen that way in real life every time, but you could believe. Yeah. Because once you believe it, then the characters are relatable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. So my follow-up question has to be, how comfortable is a 300-year-old couch? <laughs> or bed. Or bed, yeah. <laughs> well, if you haven't slept for three nights like me, it was the most comfortable bed I'd ever been on. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So if we want to delve a little bit more into Everybody Loves Raymond, how did that ball get rolling? Like, what was the initial, like, selling point on it? You know, how did you yes. get how did you get that started? Well, Ray had been trying to be a, a stand-up comedian for 12 yeah. years, and he was right. doing pretty well, and he finally got a shot on David Letterman. But mm -hmm. for 12 years, he was trying to get on. Yeah. And from one six-minute appearance, David Letterman, he had a development deal at uh, CBS Letterman. Wow. He said, there should be a show for this guy. Mm -hmm. And so the way it works is they set about looking for writers to create a show for talent, and as a writer you're looking for talent to create a show for. Right. Right. And so we had a meeting and we got along pretty well. I thought, I don't even think I was his first choice because I hadn't really done anything famous, but we had a kind of a connection in that we were both born in Queens, New York. And for every story he had about his crazy Italian family, I had one about my Fakakta Jewish family. And it turns out we're not that different. Yeah. <laughs> so he told me about his actual life. And it was as good a starting point as any mm -hmm. for a show. He certainly didn't see it that way. Well, what's my life? What, yeah. Who cares? And I was like, well, I have a life too. And what I don't know about the characters from his family, the personalities, I filled in with the personalities of my family. Yeah. Thinking, I think this is a kind of funny, classic situation right. of a guy caught between all the other family members yeah. especially if they live close by mm -hmm. and and you're torn between your mother and your wife and then you're a brother also and you're a dad yeah and you have a job there's all these things mm -hmm. and i love i just thought it was so relatable it's a very low concept yeah mm -hmm. but in a town where the things that sell are very high concept yeah but the very high concepts don't last long mm -hmm. because every episode of your series, you know, if they come from outer space, every single episode has to be about how they come from outer space and how maybe the neighbors can't find out. Yeah. Right. right. So it's all the same. So it can't, that can't last as long as every day, everyday stuff. Yeah. And everybody's 
life is valid. What defines a person individually is you are a collection of your experiences filtered through the way you think. That's what makes you you. And that's what makes your story as valid as anybody's. You think, well, my life is boring. No, it's not. You think it is because it, you have to live it, right? And you don't yeah. know everybody else's life. But I'm telling you, it's unique enough. Your experiences filtered through the way you think start writing. And I tell people, you don't have to write a story. You don't have to write a script. You could just write. You could just write down your thoughts about the day or not even your thoughts. If that's too intimidating. Oh my God, I have to commit my thoughts. First of all, no one's seeing this. Yeah. Right. Just for you. <laughs> it's just for you. Write down what happened today. Just even if it was a list of the things that happened today, even if it was three things, the stuff that you're living, you should write down. And maybe three months later, you go back and look at that and go, hey, that could be something. Hey, that could be a story there. And that's how you might write. And even then, when you write, let's say you're going to write your first story that you ever wrote. And the story always comes first. You don't sit down and start writing dialogue. It's, mm -hmm. not, it's not that you can't or you shouldn't. It's that if you're trying to get any kind of work, you always has to start with the story because if the story's not there, you don't have anything. Mm -hmm. Right. There should be zero filter on it. You should not be thinking about anyone else except yourself. Right. Because no one else is going to see this. You can tell yourself and mean it. No one else will ever see this. And so there's freedom in that. Now, what I would also tell young people is take a class. Because it's not about how creative you are as a human being. It's about understanding at least the form yeah. of what you're going to write. And the very worst thing that will happen to you from taking that class is you will come out at the end of that class with a script. Yeah. Because that's <laughs> what every class is. You're going to write a script. Mm -hmm. If you're taking a sitcom class, you're going to write a sitcom script. If you're taking a, a single camera drama class, you're going to write that script or theater or play, right? Or musical, anything. The class helps you learn the form. Yeah. It doesn't tell you what to write or how to write. It tells you how to at least fit into the form. There's a structure that you do have to follow. Yeah. That is the learnable part. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Definitely. So. So as you're show running, everybody loves Raymond. Obviously, that show became a massive hit, 210 episodes, lots of Emmys. Congratulations. Thank you. As a showrunner, does it get easier or harder with that kind of success as you're working on the show? At first, it's super hard. Yeah. You don't even know what the show is. And you're trying stuff. It's like you're trying on clothes and seeing what fits. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there's a lot of pressure. I felt a lot of pressure. I even had, if you if you read the book, there was even someone gunning for my job. Like wanted he wanted to, the, a guy from one of the studios wanted to be a showrunner, and he thought it would be great to just jump on a show that was already running. Mm. And so he literally tried to get me fired. So all that pressure on top of just trying to come up with ideas for the show, right? And define the show. What is the show? What is the tone of the show? That, well, the second season, third season, fourth season, really, that sweet spot of the middle years. Yeah. That was easier. It, it's, okay. never, it's never easy. Right. It's easier still. because now at least we know what the show is. We think we know what works. We know a good story when we hear it. We know 
how to do it. It's still hard to always come up with a good idea or write a script. It's always hard. Yeah, of course. But it does get easier because at least now you know the water you're swimming in. Right. right. As it gets towards the end of the run, and listen, most shows get canceled. Right. We were lucky enough to go out when we thought we were done. We ended on our terms, which was the luckiest part yeah, of all. Yeah, that's awesome. Because you do have to end well. And then it did get harder towards the end. And when it started to get harder, like, oh, don't we feel like we've done that show before, that yeah. story before, that feeling before? Let's get out of here before we become lousy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No matter how much money they're throwing at us, mm -hmm. let's get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> because even the value, the monetary value of the show will be worth more yes. if we end well. Yeah. Right. So forget all this money. I never did anything for money. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I just got really lucky. Yeah. Everything we did, we did because we loved it. It wasn't like we, oh, we like this idea. We love this idea. Mm -hmm. I can't wait for you to see this idea. <laughs> I can't wait to film it in front of a live audience. I can't wait for it to be on TV and for my friends and my family to see it. And then the audience that seems to like the show. Well, if you like that, wait till you see this. That was the most exciting part. Not the money. Yeah. Although it's very, I mean. It's very nice. Yeah. <laughs> but if you go into it just for money, you're not, I really believe you're not going to be that happy ultimately. Well, it's so much work. I mean, you have to, you have to really love it if you're going to do it. Cause it's so many hours, you know, it's so much of your time. It's so much of your energy that if you're having a terrible time, I mean, I, I mean, it's gotta be hard to sell anything because people are going to not see that, you know, you had a very genuine kernel to your idea that you really loved. So that probably made it a lot easier to convince people to make it. You know what the high point emotionally of my career was? I was 14 years old and I tried out for the school play and I went down to the theater call board, which was just a bulletin board. And they posted the cast list for the play. Who's going to be in the play? Mm -hmm. Here comes the cast list. And my name was at the bottom and I was in first time. Spend the rest of my life chasing that feeling. <laughs> chasing the high of being on the cast. That was the gateway drug. Yes, yes being definitely. in the school play. And that's it. Yeah. And they're certainly not getting paid for that. Right. You do it because you love it. Yeah. And you've transitioned to so many different things after that show as well. I do want to ask you about Somebody Feed Phil, which is a lovely show um, that we enjoy watching. Thank you. You know, we've talked to a couple of people who have worked as fixers and a couple of producers who talked to your brother. Yeah. So how do you choose your destination for where you're traveling to for each episode? Well, there's a couple of ways. One is I've always wanted to go there. Yeah. Or I've been there and I can't wait to show you why I love the place. Italy is a good example, right? Yeah. But then there's places that I've never been and sound scary and figuring out a way to do it. And of course, my brother would like me to jump in cold water every single time of course <laughs> you think yeah, that's course. hilarious <laughs> but getting me out of my comfort zone mm -hmm. you know i always said said this many times but the way i sold the show was very simple i said i'm exactly like anthony bourdain if he was afraid of everything <laughs> <laughs> and that's what sold the show literally because they understood this was pbs at the time mm -hmm. that oh this is will be in that genre but might have a sense of humor. 
Yeah. Right. There'll be this character. That is the only niche that I could fill yeah. in this genre, because I'm certainly not Bourdain. He was an adventurer. Yeah. I would watch him and I would go, he's amazing. I'm never doing that. <laughs> right. But I thought maybe there's a show for people who just getting off the couch is getting out yeah. of their comfort zone. And I think the world would be better if we all could experience a little bit of other people's experiences. Yeah. So I'm just using food and my stupid sense of humor to get that message across. Yeah. And so it almost doesn't matter where we go mm-hmm. because you can find that message everywhere. Right. And so we have people now that this is going to be our seventh season coming mm-hmm. up. We have tourism boards calling us. That's awesome. Hey, come here. Right. So that's nice. And we explore everything and see what to, do we have enough to film for a week? That's yeah. All. That's the criteria. And it's not just obviously about food. We want to have activities. We want to have some kind of charitable moment. How can we leave the place a little bit better than we find it? Mm-hmm. How can we, without being preachy, but because we understand without entertainment value, nobody's watching. Right. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's like a chef. It doesn't matter how good this food is for you or how sustainable it is. If it's not delicious, nobody's eating it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and you do such a good job of highlighting the places you go, but you also do such a good job of letting the people you're talking to highlight what they love about their country. Right. And that's just really nice to see, and it's so cool to experience it through the eyes of the people that live there. It really is. It's my favorite part of every place we go is the people. Mm -hmm. And all that takes is curiosity. Yeah. And I really am excited when you see me excited. There's no acting. I say, People said, uh, so you, this is a documentary series. You, you were allowed to do it during the strike. I'm like, we were allowed to finish because there's no acting or yeah. writing on the show. And yeah. they said, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really feel that I'm the luckiest person you're ever going to talk to on your podcast. Not that it was easy, not that it was, you know, just handed to me because it wasn't. Right. It took 10 years to land the show, first at PBS and now on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Was it worth it? The 10 years of really struggling to get it on. This is after the success of Raymond. Yeah. Right. People think, oh, he has that show because he did Raymond. No, mm-hmm. that's not why. 10 years of trying. Was it worth it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it was. Well, that's good to hear. Because yeah. look at me now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a good point is that even if you you know, achieve some huge milestone, you know, there's still work that you have to do. It's rarely, right. especially today, where you're like, oh, this is it. I've made it. I've definitively made it. Now my career, I can coast. Like, you know, it's still a lot of hard work. Everybody has to hustle. Yeah. Everybody has to hustle. That's right. It, the work never stops. The yeah. trick is to enjoy the work. Yeah. <laughs> There's always going to be work. There's always going to be, you know, people in your way too. Mm-hmm. people who have different ideas than you and they're very annoying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when that does come up, Phil, how do you deal with people who are obstacles? Well, let's take Richard, for example. <laughs> okay. Your brother. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we can argue. Mm-hmm. For instance, he'll say, you're going to go in a helicopter? And I say, no, I'm not. And he says, yes, you are. And I say, no, I'm not. And he says, yes, you are. And then I do it. (laughs) I may not enjoy it, Mm -hmm. but it's always worthwhile that I did it. 
Yeah. 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 And I'm actually happy that I did it. And I'm happy to have somebody to push me out of my comfort zone a little bit. What's funny is neither of us ever learn from all the times that it's worked. Yeah. Right. Because I always think, yes, it may have worked those other times, but this is the time <laughs> when I died. <laughs> <laughs> so for those listeners who don't know, Phil's brother, Rich, is the executive producer on Somebody Feeds Phil. Um, yes. So, so, Phil, what is it like to work with family? Terrible. <laughs> no, it's really a joy. It's really the best time of my life. Raymond was the best time of my life. And now this is, I'm going to say, even better because it's happening now. Yeah. Mm. I've always put my family, like Monica was in Raymond. Mm -hmm. My wife was in Raymond, mm -hmm. you know, many years before that. That's what... That's what attracted me to her first was how great she was and just wanting to put her in something else that I was working on at the time yeah. in a play in college. She took advantage of me and <laughs> and uh, we, got, we got married. And then Raymond came along, I think, right before our second child was born. One of the other writers said, hey, how about Monica for this part of the girl who's going to date Ray's brother? And I said, OK, as long as it wasn't my idea, I don't want to foist my wife <laughs> yeah. on the public. Right. And, uh, you know, we'll try her out in one episode and one episode in the first season and everyone loved her. Mm -hmm. And then, she, and then you know, she was in. I was yeah. so happy. But the point is to work with your family, if you get along, is a wonderful thing. And mm -hmm. my brother and I, when we were little kids, I was very jealous of him. And in fact, I was the Robert and he was the Raymond. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's a reason the show, I psychologically. Yeah. That it's called Everybody Loves Raymond. It's from mm -hmm. the older brother's point of view, the jealous <laughs> older brother. That's me. <laughs> and, you know, when you're five, you're the star of the show at home. And then your parents come home with this replacement. Mm -hmm. So who likes that guy? <laughs> Plus, he's really cute and sweet. And everyone would rather be with him than with you. <laughs> Terrible. I was miserable and yeah. we fought all the time and uh, this guy. And then you go to college, you go away. Things are, you know, they weren't always awful, but then you realize, oh, I had it pretty good at home. And yeah. that guy's pretty good. Maybe you should grow up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> my parents, my their favorite, favorite thing in their lives was that Richard and I worked together. That's hmm. awesome. Yeah. Because we fought like crazy. They thought yeah. maybe we wouldn't even talk to each other. The joy that it gave them to see us not just getting along, but having these wonderful adventures together yeah. and being so happy and laughing so mm. much. It's I wish that for every parent to have your kids work together at something they love. Yeah. That's excellent. Yeah. And you get to show so many people so many different places. Like someone can be sitting at home and they may, you know, they may never get to go to the country you're in, but they get to experience it through you showing them and then the people you connect with there, you know, getting screen time to show what they love. Yes. And I understand that. I understand it costs money to go. And I understand that people are afraid even. But the number one reward for me is that when somebody writes to me and tells me they went because they saw the show. That's awesome. Yeah. Changes your life. Nothing changes your life like travel. That's yeah. really, it's like a magic. You get, you come back with 
a different perspective on your life mm-hmm. that you carry with you for the rest of your life. That's yeah. why you travel. It's not just about going over there and eating the f- nice food and seeing mm-hmm. beautiful sight. That's all great. But I promise you will come back different. Yeah. People ask me the hardest part of doing the show. The hardest part of doing the show is waiting to do the show. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I have this list of places I want to go. When do we leave? Yes. <laughs> and they're not fast enough. I'm picking yeah. up the show again for another season. <laughs> <laughs> and I always think, oh, this could be the last season. Yeah. yeah. Right? Well, I'm glad it's not. <laughs> Thanks. So if we could talk about that process for just a second. Sure. Once you decide, you know, you're going to a, a country or a city or wherever you're going, what is that process for like planning your trip? How involved are you or do you really walk it through with your brother or your team? Yes. How does that work? I do walk it through with my brother. I say, hey, I've always wanted to go to such and such a country. I do what everybody else does. I, I uh, Google best places to eat <laughs> is that right? in, uh, in <laughs> Lisbon, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I say, oh, it looks like there's a lot of good stuff here. and. It looks gorgeous. I've never been to Lisbon. We should go to Lisbon. Okay. He goes, send me what you're thinking. I send him the list that I've found. And you have to cross-reference. You can't just go by Yelp because the one great review could be from the owner. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it probably is. Yeah. It probably is. So you have to cross-reference. When it starts, when the restaurant starts popping up on many lists, you go, that must be something. Mm -hmm. And it looks amazing to me. But I have something that maybe you don't have, which is the production company in New York. It's 0.0 Productions. They were actually Anthony Bourdain's production company. Yeah. So they have fixers all over the world. Mm -hmm. And they can tell me, okay, that place, that used to be the hot place. That's not where you go for pizza anymore. You go here for pizza. This is the hot new place. Or Bourdain did that already. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Either you don't need to do it or... It'd be fun to see your take on it. Yeah. Because he's very different. Mm -hmm. And it was years ago. Yeah. So it's all valid. It's all good. And we discuss it. And Richard and I go through a very big list of the stuff that the fixers have found and the stuff I found. And there's a little they've written up why. And we go through it. Yes, this sounds good. This one sounds too much like that place. And if we have that place, maybe we don't go to this place uh, or this is the better place. Who knows? Either way, we're going to film for a week and we leave room in the schedule of shooting for stuff to happen spontaneously. Right. Which is usually my favorite part of the show. (laughs) And I recommend leaving room in your travel schedule whenever you travel for that magic to happen because that's the greatest fine. You can do all the research you want and get all the recommendations from experts, but there's no feeling like stumbling onto a place accidentally and having that be the most memorable part of your whole trip. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But it can happen if you're sitting at home watching somebody feed Phil. Right. You have to go. <laughs> Watch it on your phone, on the plane, to wherever you're going next. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. People do that. Yeah. We also have a website called philrosenthalworld.com, which lists every place that we've been in the show Yeah. with the contacts for that place so you can book it yourself. And plan a little bit, but mm-hmm. I'm telling you, leave room yeah. for stuff to happen. We did want to ask about your podcast, Naked Lunch, with David Wild. Yes, David Wild, my friend. He worked at Rolling Stone magazine, was mm-hmm. one of the great interviewers. Yes, absolutely. All the every every musician you can think of. Mm-hmm. He also covered TV, and he wrote the first 
major review of Everybody Loves Raymond in the first oh, season. Oh, nice. Right? I didn't and know it that. was so nice in Rolling Stone magazine. Yeah. I thought, wow, we're cool. Yeah. <laughs> and I called this writer up to say thank you. And we start talking. I said, let's have lunch. And we've been having lunch ever since. And sometimes he'd bring a musician to lunch. Sometimes I'd bring a, a great comedy writer. Uh-huh. And we would have these really fun lunches. And I always thought we should be taping this. And so now we are. Now we do it. That's awesome. And so that's what Naked Lunch is. That's great. And, you know, we've actually had David on this show and got to talk to him about his experience in the industry, which is wonderful. Amazing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. But, you know, we've listened to a lot of that show as well. And we really enjoy your conversations. Oh, thanks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just great to, to hear that perspective. Well, how do you balance all these different facets? Is it just like you mostly record Naked Lunch when you're on break from somebody feed? Film? Exactly. Maybe there was one that I did when I was on the road. Okay. But mostly. Just zoom, zo- zoomed in with right. David, zooming in from another place. Mm-hmm. But I uh, I mostly do it with David. Yeah. And it's mostly not Zoom because we like to, there's something about eating with the person. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's really fun. Mm-hmm. We do some research, obviously, about whoever we're talking to, but mm-hmm. then it just becomes lunch conversation. Amazing. Yeah, that's really fun. Yeah. I mean, you've worked on a thousand different things, but you've also been an executive producer of No Ordinary Campaign. Can you tell us a little bit about that project and how you got involved? Well, my mom passed away from ALS. Mm-hmm. And my friends, Brian Wallach mm-hmm. and Sandra, his wife, he has ALS. They both worked for President Obama. Mm-hmm. He was diagnosed and they realized pretty quickly that there was a lot lacking in the health system for, for research and for this is like a, really a horrible disease. And they started to advocate for themselves and for everyone else with ALS. And they actually got a bill through. Yeah. And the the documentary is called No Ordinary Campaign. And these guys are like superheroes. And it's a it's actually a great documentary. Yeah. Yeah. So I was very proud to just help a little bit. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Well, Phil, you've done so many different things, but what's the most challenging part of all of the different projects you've been a part of? Doing this podcast, I find, is very. <laughs> I hope it's not too this hard. This is so hard. <laughs> challenging? Honestly, I, it's how we started. The yeah. business, the business. I'll never understand it. I can never mm-hmm. figure it out. I don't know what they want. Nobody does. Yeah. I can't, I literally can't understand why it has to be so hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I come from a world where if the show is doing well, you keep it on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That yeah. world doesn't exist anymore. Right. Because mm-hmm. they want new, new, new all the time. Mm-hmm. They figure, oh, they have the show already. They have the poster for the show. If anybody's looking for it, it comes up on their screen. The audience doesn't know if there's one episode behind that screen or a thousand. That's just on the shelf like a library, and it's at their disposal whenever they want it. But to me, I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is a reference show at the very least. And it gains in value the more volumes you have. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. If you're traveling, you can go to somebody feed Phil and you can look up that place where you're going to go. But it's only really valuable if it's comprehensive. Yeah. Nobody thinks that way. They Mm -hmm. just think, oh, whoever, whatever subscribers we got for that show, we got already. We may as well take the money to make that show and make a new show. 
Which is great for getting new subscribers, maybe. But what about the old subscribers? Yeah. What about the people who, who might like the thing? Yeah, like how do you get people to stick around? So I have to wait and wait every season. Yeah. So for, you know, sometimes a year and a half between seasons. Wow. And soon the show's going to be somebody push, Phil. <laughs> I'm sure you have a bunch of these. Do you have any moments from your career that are either just a favorite moment or a moment where you're like, I can't believe this is what I get to do for a living? Well, the show. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I got to be on Stephen Colbert, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And I brought out sandwiches, right? We're about to take a bite. And he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. As I was describing the sandwich, he goes, this is what you do for a living. And all I could do is smile and take a bite of my sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Yeah. What kind of sandwiches were they? These were Italian sandwiches. There was a place in Florence, Italy called Antico Vanaio, and they open on 8th Avenue in New York near the Colbert uh, Ed Sullivan Theater. And so I asked the producer there, I said, I'm coming out. It was my first time out. I think I'd like to bring him a sandwich. And they said, okay, he likes to eat. Yeah. And he brought out, which I didn't know, a beautiful bottle of wine and opened it. And I got to drink. If you go on YouTube, you can see the segment. Yeah. So charming. But we ate and drank wine. I felt like the luckiest guy in the world. (laughs) So you've already given a lot of great advice Mm -hmm. so far in the interview, but what other great advice do you have for people who are interested in either, you know, becoming a writer or just getting involved in the industry itself? Just how can people best do that? I'm sure other people have told you this, but you take any job you can. If if you're, if your job is to, you got a job getting coffee, you get coffee and you get it the better, better than anyone else has ever gotten coffee. Yeah. And you, you, you do it for longer than you think you should have to do it. Mm -hmm. right but you do it and once in a while you might ask could i listen in on this part of the business that i'm interested in right or could ask a film editor could i observe one day you can't say to the producer of the film i should be the director Mm -hmm. what do you mean you just got here where's my coffee is what he's going to say Right. What do you think they're going to (laughs) say? But there are expectations like my career isn't moving fast enough. It's not like I see in the movies. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes, of course not. But if you get coffee, be the best coffee getter in the world and people will like you. If you're nice, people will like you. And most people are nice. Yes, you're going to meet the assholes and the, the people who, you know, are worse than assholes. But but most people are nice. And if you ask them a question, they're happy to answer it. And if you want to, you know, literally pay your dues and just observe and and not talk so much, but listen, right? Yeah. One of them someday, I promise you, will say, what do you think? Because you've been there. Mm-hmm. Right. Listen, we, uh, by by Writers Guild rules, we have to take an outside script every season, right? If we're working on a sitcom, meaning... You must take a script from a freelancer who or or someone in the business who doesn't work on the show. And that's great. But you can also take from inside, like the writer's assistant. And a lot of the times those scripts are actually better. Why? Because the writer's assistant has been in the room with you right. and knows what the show is. Yeah. Right. They know all the details. And wants to be a writer. Yeah. We've promoted from within plenty. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. know if everybody's like that, but I find... 
why not? Yeah. You need new people. You got to, you know, replenish. Mm-hmm. Got to have a farm team, right? Yeah. So that's the, so you create it. A lot of people are saying you have to hire so-and-so. You have to hire these people, these people. Have these people ever worked in sitcoms before? No. But now there's a quota. You have to hire this. And I'm like, yes, I'm all for this. But shouldn't there be a training program? Like out of college, people should, if they're interested in this, they should go into that. You can't just throw someone in the deep end of the pool and expect them to swim. Yeah. There has to be a little bit of training. Here's the best piece of advice I ever got in my life. When I was writing the pilot for Raymond, I asked an old established showrunner named Ed Weinberger, whose name you might have seen on many sitcoms yeah. in the past, like <laughs> the Mary Tyler Moore show and Taxi. I said, any advice? He goes, do the show you want to do, because in the end, they're going to cancel you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and I've lived my life yeah. with that philosophy. <laughs> it's I love worked that. out. <laughs> yes. Let's get to our featured film. Today we're discussing the 1964 comedy, Mary Poppins. It was written by Bill Walsh, Don Grady, and P.L. Travers, and directed by Robert Stevenson. It stars Julie Andrews, Dick Van Dyke. It won five Oscars, including Best Actress and Best Original Song. So, Susan Q is a quick breakdown. What's this movie about? Yeah, I think most people know this story, but um, it is based on Mary Poppins. She's a nanny. Uh, she shows up at the house of Jane and Michael Banks. Their previous nanny quit. Their, a lot of their previous nannies quit. Yeah. Their mom is really desperate to find someone who will work because she has her own stuff she wants to do. The dad is, you know, working at the bank all day. And Mary Poppins magically comes into the picture and they go on just a bunch of adventures <laughs> with Dick Van Dyke's character, Bert. So we'll get into more specifics, but that's the setup of the movie. Absolutely. Yeah. And Phil, you chose this movie for us to watch today. Why did you choose Mary Poppins? I was four years old when that movie came out. I made every adult that I knew take me to this movie. I must have seen it six times because <laughs> it was a, a, a world mm-hmm. that I wanted to live in. Yep. And it was it was so magical and beautiful and funny and fun with great music and mm-hmm. great laughs and great acting. And I don't know, you're not going to believe this, but I wanted to marry Mary Poppins. Yeah. I wanted to, I was four, but I said, Oh, uh, you knew. I think I've figured out my life. I should marry that woman. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine a lot of kids felt that way. For sure. I don't know. I yeah. mean, I skipped over, I wish she was my nanny to, <laughs> That's I'm going to marry go. her. You went pretty yeah, yeah. far. <laughs> I knew we had, I knew we had problems. I knew that I lived in the, in the, in the Bronx and she was uh, in or above London. <laughs> <laughs> but I knew we could figure it out because yeah. she seemed very, very nice. Yeah. <laughs> that movie is obviously, I mean, when you talk about it, it's just iconic. And we all know it as this like great, great kids movie musical thing. But it's, I swear to you, it's a beautiful work of art. Yeah. Mm. The craftsmanship in every detail from the writing the story the message right just the heart of it yeah then the characters then the casting the direction the songs mm-hmm. the art direction every single detail we don't have movies that care like that mm-hmm. Do you know that Walt Disney spent 20 years just trying to get the rights 
from P.L. Travers, who wrote the book. Yeah. Right? In the 40s. 20 years just to get the rights. And then the work started. Yeah. Yeah, That's wild. They had to satisfy her, P.L. Travers, who was not easy. And there were a lot of aspects of her personality in Mary Poppins. Mm -hmm. There's a few actors who have lived that you could say there's something magical about them. I'm not talking about the magic like Mary Poppins has magic. Right, Right. I'm talking about this human being transcends humanity itself to be some kind of ethereal, mm-hmm. magical talent. When you look at her, you feel love. You cry at the how incredibly talented she is, just her singing, mm-hmm. her articulation, her speech, her manner, her way of being, her kindness, her sarcasm, yeah. her sense of humor, her vanity. So it's not just like she's, oh, you know, people think Mary Poppins, oh, she's just this goody-goody. No, she has hilarious, yes, a hilarious side to her, which you don't even realize when you're a child. One of my favorite things about it, as I'm old now, is, yes, it was my favorite, favorite movie when I was four. But then if you're lucky enough to grow up and have children of your own and then watch it with them, and see what it does to them and how the whole movie is about being a parent, which you certainly don't realize when you're a kid. Right. You think it's about a magical nanny. Yeah. (laughs) And then when you're a parent, you go, holy cow, this is about being a parent. Mm -hmm. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that just one of the greatest things ever put to film to have forever? It's timeless. Yeah. I think it's a sign of a really good story and movie when you can watch it at different phases of your life and you always relate to it. Like watching this as an adult is a different experience than watching it as when I was little, but I still find things, you know, to relate to really well. And, you know, absolutely. And, you know, for a protagonist, you always look and see who changes throughout the film. Yeah. And the answer is it's the father. Yeah. The father is the one who exactly. changes. You he starts it. off as being the stubborn, you know, very, you got it, you know, organized and very, everything has to be run precisely kind of even the household, you know, the family. But there was such subtlety in that too. Yeah. Right. Right. PL Travers said, cause I was just listening to uh, the making of it, which is on YouTube. If you go YouTube making of Mary Poppins, it's okay. like a 50 minute thing that was made in 2004 hmm. and Dick Van Dyke takes you through it. And that, right. But right. PL Travers says, no, 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 he's not mean at the beginning because that that would have been the obvious choice. Make him right. a mean dad. Right. No, he's just frustrated and put upon by the necessities of life. He's actually trying to provide for his family. It's that struggle. Yes, I'm doing all this for for you, for your family. Yes, but dad, you're not spending any time with us. Right. That's a classic situation. Oh, yeah. so relatable. Yeah. Totally relatable. He's not a mean guy, but he realizes that being with your family is more important than even his job. Mm-hmm. Right. It's so beautiful. It's so great. This movie is so well made, as you said, Phil. I mean, it was made in 1964 yeah. or released in 1964, but the special effects, they still hold up. They, they still work. Yes. Um, and Absolutely. I love, love the moments where they obviously go into the, the 2D animation world. Yes. It takes up a bunch of the movie. Good mm-hmm. chunk. Yeah. But it's so well done. And, and of course, we watched this movie again yesterday, but I had not seen it for many, oh. many years. But I still remember yeah. those scenes in my head because they're so iconic. The acting is delightful. Even Dick Van Dyke with his insane <laughs> accent is so Doesn't fun. matter. 
it's so fun he does you a, go with it yeah it fits, it, i mean it, it's believable to the character so exactly and but you just, know that he filmed he filmed that in between seasons of dick van dyke show really really and julie andrews was coming off of uh broadway in fact they saw yeah. her they saw her she had done my fair lady on broadway and mm. in london that was her first big break and they saw her in camelot walt disney himself saw wow. her in camelot and the other the other guys like the sherman brothers they had seen just her do a song from camelot on ed sullivan show and they all came in and we're talking about it. so walt disney flies to new york and he sees camelot and he comes backstage and he says i've been working on this thing for years you're the perfect person and he pitches her in her dressing room God. backstage at camelot and she's like she she's very nice obviously to him but afterwards she's saying to her husband i don't want to do this kids movie i mean it's very nice but i want to do my fair lady yeah but she doesn't get my fair lady the movie why because she's not a star yeah and they cast audrey hepburn well they come out the same year julie andrews wins the oscar for mary poppins over audrey hepburn and my fair lady <laughs> <laughs> it goes back to what you said take you know take a job even if it's not the one you think you want <laughs> some of that right yeah, but also right? sometimes it's meant to be yeah definitely right right everything works out mm -hmm. well did you guys have a favorite scene from the movie i really love the whole chimney sweep yeah. sequence yeah that's my favorite. where she's she's like all right i guess we got to do this and she just goes up the yes. chimney presented yes. as like a practical solution but yes like that's what i another thing i really love about mary poppins she seems so practical when she's making her decisions and it's a, yes. a like a, such a whimsical funny decision the whole dancing scene with the chimney sweeps was really cool i mean visually and it was just fun to you know a fun scene to move along but yeah that's great part yeah yeah i love when they come back into the house and it's uh -huh. just mayhem everywhere yeah. and yes. everyone gets swept up into it mm -hmm. and then to the point where they all sort of get shoot out and then they're all just like scattered yeah and all these chimney a, sweeps as the police down come the walking up it's like it's just great <laughs> i love that by the way how great is how great is glennis john she yes. never talked about in the movie no she's but great she's so funny and the device of you don't when you're a little kid you don't know what suffragettes are no no you idea know. right it's the woman's movement yeah it's feminism uh -huh. how great is that to be yeah. in that movie right that was, that was really cool yeah really cool and never never preachy mm -hmm. never pedantic nope. never like oh this is the pain in the ass message part it was never that way yeah it was really really sharp and good mm -hmm. i mean there's so much for adults to get out of the film. Phil, did you have a favorite scene from Mary Poppins? The, the scene where I marry her? Is that in there? Yeah, I think that's in the epilogue. <laughs> yeah, it's a post-credit post scene, sure. <laughs> if anyone knows Monica, you know that I actually kind of did. <laughs> I do love the dancing with the penguins in the 2D yeah. animation yeah, thing. Classic. I think that's brilliant. Mm -hmm. I do love the laughing on the ceiling that because it's all jokes and I loved anything yeah. that was funny. I love the ending just kills me. I could cry thinking about it. Yeah. That kind of thing doesn't happen very often. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of favorite movies. In fact, there's a couple of Naked Lunch podcasts where we just go through our favorite movies. Yeah. Mm. And I have a lot of them, and I have a lot of them every year mm -hmm. that I'm in love with. But it's not like that. Yeah. Right. 
There are some also some just like bananas scenes in this movie that made me laugh that I did not remember. Like at yeah. the very beginning, when like the wind blows away all of the other nannies that show up for the job. That's so funny. And then so funny and great yeah. and 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 economical. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yes, here. exactly. Yes. Uh, and at, the, at the very end also when dick van dyke also plays the very old banker the senior banker yes. right right and, and when it's mentioned at the very end of the movie it's like oh yeah that guy died laughing because of a joke <laughs> you told it's such a funny moment and so bizarre because i did not remember that happening in the film um but i i like laugh because it's so wild to sort of like yeah my my father passed away but you know now there's a position for you at the bank and yeah. it's just like what a great way to like button the movie the joy that came from Mary Poppins, it spread to the children, it spread to the father, mm-hmm. and it finally spread to the banker. It's such a great message yeah. of like, you know, the impact that great message, great, the greatest message. And they even there's another message of charity without beating you over the head, just this beautiful song when you think about it. Mm-hmm. And then when you go to London and you see these places, that place with the bird lady is real. Right. On the steps of St. St. Paul's. That's real. You can go. <laughs> <laughs> and you can spend your two cents if you want. That's you don't right. take it to the bank. We like to finish up our show today. The game that we're calling Everybody Loves Raymonds. <laughs> In honor of our guest today, we're going to see how both of you know films where one of the characters is named Ray or Raymond. Oh, so, Phil, you're going to be playing against Susan. All right, Susan. I used to like you, but now you're my enemy. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so here are the rules. I'm going to describe a film. If you know the title of the product, shout it out. And if you're correct, you'll earn one point. I have seven titles for you both to identify, and whoever gets the most correct will win our prize. And Susan, what's our prize? It is some Life in the Credits merchandise, like a hat or a mug oh. or a tote bag, t-shirt. water bottle, T-shirt. The stakes are high, Phil. <laughs> All right. All right. Are you ready to play? Yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. Remember, all of these movies have a character named Ray or Raymond. So, number one, this is a 1984 supernatural comedy. Ghostbusters. Yeah. Oh, duh. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> right off the bat. Very good film. All right. That is Ghostbusters. Number two. This is a 1989 sports fantasy drama. Feel the dreams? Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Well done. I did not realize that was classified as a fantasy movie. Yeah. It makes and, sense. Yeah. Just, yeah. I didn't know his name ago. was Ray. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the main character's <laughs> name. Yeah. Kevin Costner yeah. plays Ray. All right. right number three. Now, yeah. Number three. This is a 1988 road comedy drama. This is like Thelma. In, no. Thelma no. and Louise. No. no. That was my first road thought. comedy. Okay, next, keep going. Your next clue is directed by Barry Levinson and written by Barry Morrow and Ronald Bass. That clue does not help me. The next, <laughs> I, I think the next clue will get it. Okay. It stars Dustin Hoffman and Tom Cruise. Rain Man. Yes. Oh. Rain Man is correct. How many do we have to get to win? You have to get four points. Oh, no, I need to... And Phil has three <laughs> in a row. It's going to be a shutout. All right, so number four. Okay. And remember, if Phil gets this, he wins. All right. This is a 2004 biographical musical drama. 
Ray. It's Ray. Ray. It's Ray Charles. Absolutely. Well done, Phil. You swept the points. I do know a movie with Ray in it. You know a lot of movies with Ray. Ray. (laughs) He won the Oscar, I believe. Yes, he did. did. Jamie Foxx. Incredible Mm -hmm. performance. Incredible. Beautiful movie. Incredible singing. Yes. Well, I've got three more. Three more movies. Do you guys want to do them just for fun? Sure. All right. Number five is a 1993 science fiction action film. It was directed by Steven Spielberg and written by Michael Creighton and David Kep. Jurassic Park? Yes, <laughs> of course. That's Jurassic Park. Susan is on the board. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number six, this is a 1997 crime film. This is also getting a lot harder now. It was written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. Pulp Fiction. Nope. Oh. True romance? No, but excellent guess. It stars Pam Greer, Samuel L. Jackson, Robert oh. Ford. Oh, oh, I know that I, I know this movie. Yes, you do. Uh uh, uh her name. It's her name. Yes, it's, it is. Uh, it's Brown. Something Brown. I have no idea. It's Jackie Brown. Jack. That's it. Jackie. <laughs> See, her name Brown. isn't Ray. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> well, the the one of the other characters the name Ray in it. Um, the right. bondsman is named Ray. All right, and the last one, number seven, 2013 science fiction thriller film. It was written and directed by Alfonso Coran, as well as Jonas Coran. It stars Sandra Bullock and George Clooney. Oh, uh, it's not Interstellar. It's it's the other one. Gravity. Yes, very yeah. good, Susan. Excellent. Two to four yes. or two to five. <laughs> That's excellent. Yeah. Gravity. Well, yeah, I wouldn't have gotten that. Yeah. That's okay, but you easily won. Yeah, congratulations. Uh, Is there anything you want to plug? Naked Lunch Podcast we covered. Somebody Feed filled the book. Mm-hmm. Somebody Feed Phil the show is coming <laughs> in a few months. I yes. can't say when, but that'll be season seven. I don't know when. Can't tell you where we go either. That's, That's a okay. rule. <laughs> and, uh, oh, a children's book that I wrote with my daughter, Lily. Oh, cool. It's about a dad who eats everything and a little girl who won't eat anything. And oh. it's called Just Try It. <laughs> <laughs> Love and it. And can, where can people find that? People can pre-order that wherever they get their books. Excellent. Fantastic. That'll be out in a couple months. Yeah. Yeah. Phil, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I love talking to you both. Thank you. Life in the Credits is hosted and produced by me, Susan Swarner. And me, Ben Bloom. It's executive produced by Michelle Levin. The music is written and performed by Steve Trowbridge. You can hear more of Steve's music at TrowbridgeSounds.com. The show logo is created by Melissa Durkin. If you'd like to support Life in the Credits and get access to exclusive perks, you can do so at Patreon.com. If you'd like to follow or get a hold of us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life in the Credits or shoot us an email at LifeInTheCredits at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Do the show you want to do, because in the end, they're going to cancel you anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.